And so we pray now that you would just take this time and by your spirit, open our eyes to see what you have for us this morning. Uh, We love you and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, well, it's good to be with you. Good morning. Welcome to FBC. We're so glad that you are here. I want to invite you to open your Bible, if you have one with you, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verse 21. As you just heard Pastor Ian read a little bit of it for us, we are in week four of our Gospel-Shaped Relationships series where we are trying to explore how the good news about Jesus is not just something for later. Right? It's not just about eternal life and good news uh, when we die, though it certainly is that, but how does following Jesus and the message of the gospel impact how we live now? Right? How does the gospel form and shape and transform our relationships today? We've talked about so far our relationship with God, of course. We've talked about uh, your relationship with yourself. And we have talked about, in general, last week, relationships with other people, right? What's your posture towards others in your life, kind of in a general sense? But this morning, we're going to get a little bit more specific and talk about family relationships. We're going to talk about the topic of family, which I know is a, a loaded topic, Right? It's a sensitive subject because these relationships in our families probably have the biggest influence on our lives and who we become. I remember when uh, Amber and I were engaged, we went through premarital counseling and we spent um, this whole uh, session of counseling talking about our family of origin, right? where you talk through and understand how did your family growing up And your experiences in the context of family shape you and shape your expectations uh, for marriage. And we realized that we came from a different families. And if, if you're married, you probably experienced that as well, that, that your family was different from your spouse's family. And so growing up, that means you have different expectations when you think about family. And we don't always realize this when we're young, right? But as we get older, we realize that, oh, um, not every family does things how my family did them. Right? And, and sometimes that's a really encouraging thing. You, you look at your family and your upbringing and you're, you're really grateful for the, the rhythms or the traditions that your parents taught you or the things that you know, went well in your family. Like, go mom and dad, all right, you're grateful. Right? But then there are other things where you're like, oh no. <laughs> and you see the, the imperfections and the, the flaws in your family, where your family Uh, got it wrong, as we all inevitably do, right? And the sort of unhealthy things that you inherited. So there's a lot to explore here. Let me just say that talking about a biblical approach to family, I mean, really could be a whole extended sermon series. We could spend a lot of time here and cover this from a lot of different angles. And so I admit just right up front that in one Sunday, there's going to have to be a lot that is left unsaid, and yet we'll do our best to chart the way forward. And how we're going to do that, how we're going to kind of approach this topic this morning is by talking about kind of two angles, how according to the gospel, your family relationships are both more important and less important than you think. So we're going to talk about how 
your family relationships, according to the gospel, are both more important and less important than you think. In other words, we'll see how the gospel both upholds the significance and and beauty of family and, at the same time, challenges the importance of family. So we're going to start in Ephesians chapter 5. As you just heard read aloud, the book of Ephesians was written, again, by the Apostle Paul in about the middle of the first century to the church in Ephesus. And as he often does, he starts the book. If you go and read you know, Ephesians chapter 1 and 2 and so on, he starts by celebrating the gospel and all that Jesus has done for us and reminding the church of all these great truths about who God is and what he has done. And then he shifts to teaching on, hey, in light of that, here's how we are to live and carry ourselves and interact. And he, here in chapter 5, you saw, is teaching on the dynamics of family in light of the gospel. There's teaching to husbands and wives uh, at the start of chapter 6. There's teaching to children and parents. And this is where the, the first main point of the morning comes in. And that is family is more important than you think. Because your marriage is intended to display the gospel. So we're going to start talking about marriage. Family is more important than you think because your marriage is intended to display the gospel. Notice what we heard in the text so far. Verse 21 is where we started where it says, Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. And so... Leading off, we see this concept, right, of mutual submission framing this whole discussion, which really is a posture for all Christians, but it applies to husbands and wives as well, that we, if we are filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5 will say, we'll be able to and led to submit to one another, meaning we place the needs of others above our own. We seek to honor others above ourselves. Having an attitude of service, an attitude of humility, and so foundational to a Christian approach to others is mutual submission, verse 21. But then, you see it gets more specific, verse 22, talking to wives specifically, saying submit to their husbands. And then verse 25, calling husbands specifically to love their wives and sacrifice for them, essentially. There's a lot we could say here, and probably some questions are raised for you about what exactly this means. But in general, again, this is teaching that wives are to have a posture of respect for their husbands and willingness to follow their lead, while husbands have a responsibility to lead and love and sacrifice themselves for the good of their wives. Now, the Bible's clear. Husbands and wives, men and women, are equal before God, both made in His image, partners in marriage. And yet there's some nuance to their interactions here in the text. Now, notice with me, please, there's frustratingly few specifics in the passage as to what exactly this submission and loving sacrificial leadership is supposed to look like. It doesn't outline in detail what this will look like in every culture. And sometimes we get into trouble 
because we try to add to the text or think that it's saying things specifically that it's not. And sometimes that gets into breakdowns of, well, who, who is supposed to work outside of the home or what does this mean about people's uh, natural leadership ability or things like that. But the text isn't really speaking to those things and putting restrictions there. So we need to be careful not to prescribe more than the text does. But what I want you to see in the shape of this text is that these commands that are given are anchored in, rooted in, the relationship between Christ and the church. It's not just like random cultural commentary here, but it's rooted in the gospel. Okay, so trace the logic with me in verse 24 and 25. After speaking to wives, it says, Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands and everything. Verse 25, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So you see how both uh, commands are grounded in the relationship between Christ and the church. Right? For wives and husbands, it's both brought back to this relationship between Christ and the church. And we see, if we missed it, Paul drives it home a few uh, verses later in verse 31. Notice kind of towards the end, he says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he's quoting the book of Genesis there about God's design for marriage. And then, verse 32, this is a profound mystery. But I am talking about Christ and the church. So after this kind of long explanation of of family and marriage relationship dynamics, he says, hey, this is a profound mystery, and it's talking about Christ and the church. In other words, the the kind of deep sweeping truth here on display, the, the point we've been building towards in this text or this message so far is that what happens in our marriages is intended to tell a story. Our marriage, our dynamic as husband and wife is is telling a story. Marriage is designed by God to display the love relationship that he has with his people, the church. As if a Christian marriage is intended to be this, this big flashing sign with an arrow pointing people to Christ and the gospel. And so first point, realize your, your family is more important than you think because your marriage is not just about you. You know what Your marriage is not just about you. It's actually about what, what God wants to communicate to the world through you. That your, your kids, that people in your life, your neighbors would see in your marriage a reflection of the gospel and all these themes of, of sacrificial love, of trust and honor, of, of mutual honor, of exclusive, loyal faithfulness, of a binding union that is not to be broken. See, when historians look back at the early church and the explosion of Christianity in the ancient world, often uh, the Christian view of, of marriage and family was a huge part of what led to its growth in the ancient world. Historians will note that women in the ancient world especially were drawn to the church, to this Jesus community, because it emphasized women's equality. It honored women as disciples of Jesus on equal footing with men. 
And that husbands in the Christian community had binding expectations placed on them. See, that wasn't common in the Roman world. Right? In the ancient world, yes, wives were to remain faithful and devoted, but husbands uh, sexually could pretty much do what they wanted to with slaves or prostitutes or mistresses or whatever. And so in the ancient world, the call for, for wives to submit to husbands wouldn't really uh, raise an eyebrow to anybody. They'd just be like, oh, yeah, that's kind of how it works. But husbands loving their wives with this kind of devotion, this kind of sacrifice would be radical. That husbands were called to be equally devoted to their wives as their wives were to them. That husbands were to be faithful to their wives and sacrifice for their wives and hold to this binding exclusive commitment to their wives. So women in the ancient world were finding this honor, mutual love, and devotion in Christian marriage that they were not seeing in the rest of the ancient world. So marriage is designed to model the gospel for the watching world. And the watching world noticed. And notice too with this that Paul here is completely changing his culture's understanding of leadership and authority. <clears throat> right? Where he's saying, hey, Leadership, authority, it's not about privilege. It's not about getting your way. Instead, it's about responsibility. Right? Husbands, your presence and your leadership in the home is not to be used for the purpose of getting your own way and what you want and as if it's kind of your way or the highway because you're in charge. No, Paul is saying your leadership in the home is to be used to meet the needs of your wife and your family, to cherish her, Respect her. Understand her that she might flourish. Pastor of our church growing up would often say that the measure of a man is the countenance of his wife. And the measure of a man is the countenance of his wife. So husbands, are our wives flourishing? Because this is what Jesus did for his church, right? Verse 26, he gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. So husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And what did that require? He died for the church. He went to the cross. He sacrificed himself, his very life, for his people, for us, for the church, that we might flourish and have life. And so for all of us, we remember this morning this picture of the gospel, what Jesus did for us. He died on the cross in our place. He gave his life that we might be forgiven and cleansed and washed and renewed and healed and brought back into relationship with God. And see, I think sometimes with passages like this, they're taught in a way that the burden or maybe the weight of it falls on women. And and I admit that sometimes passages like this have been improperly used to squash women or control women or create a a controlling culture of fear around women and for women. And that's tragic. But notice in the text where the, the weight of it falls, where the burden here mostly falls. It's on husbands. Right? So husbands, we're not to, to leave this morning thinking about, yeah, you know, my, my wife really should do more of this or more of that. And 
really hope she, yeah, was listening to Pastor Matt. No, the, the, the mantle, the burden here is placed on husbands that we should leave this morning with this weight of I am called to sacrifice my very life for the good of my wife. And care more about her needs and her desires and her well-being and her flourishing than my own. And that in doing so, we might display the gospel and the sacrificial love of Christ. Now we're talking about family this morning, not just marriage. I, I get that, single people in the room. Some of us aren't married. Uh, there's, so there's a few other connections here as we go with the gospel and family. Uh, and the next is that family is more important than you think because Jesus wants us to display his heart for children. We can look to many places in Scripture that talk about the responsibility of parents to, to raise their children to know the Lord, to love them, to lead them, and so on. But I want to go to Matthew 18, uh, which has some kind of broad application for all of us with the young people in our lives. Matthew 18, verse 1 says this, At that time the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? He called a little child to him. And placed the child among them. And he said, Truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever takes the lowly position of this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. So you notice that when Jesus teaches about greatness in the kingdom status in the kingdom of God. His example, his go-to example, is a child. Children who in the ancient world had virtually no power or status or influence. Here Jesus says, ah, I want to see more people with hearts like that. Their lowly position, in fact, their neediness, their humility is what makes them great in the eyes of the kingdom. It reminds us how the gospel is good news for the weak and for the powerless. Those who realize their dependence and need. And so children in our homes and the children in our lives can be this powerful reminder of the gospel when we realize how much we have in common with them. I mean, how, how different would our parenting be or our, our uh, our view of children be if we realize how alike we were with them, how dependent we truly were, how much we ourselves were in need of grace and patience like them. Right? If, you, if you're a parent or you've been around young kids, you know they, they take some patience. They're going to test your patience. They require a lot of grace and love. But then we realize that we just the same, require a lot of grace and love. And God has been so patient with us. And so then we realize, you know, we can dispense grace much better when we realize that we have been recipients of grace. Right? It's much easier for us to extend grace to our children and those in our lives when we realize, you know what, God had to give me just as much grace, if not more. And he did. Not only this, but Jesus welcomed little children to come to him. Look at verse 5. He says, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. 
He calls us to welcome children. Elsewhere in the scriptures, remember when the disciples were like, ah, send the kids away. They're getting in the way, Jesus. We got more important spiritual things to do. And he rebukes his disciples. It's like, what are you guys doing? Let the children come to me. He, he elevated the status of children. In the Roman world, again, infants, children were seen as often expendable or, or just a burden. But in the kingdom of God, Jesus calls us to see children as image bearers of God. To be cherished, learned from. And so how you treat your kids, how you treat your grandkids or, or nieces and nephews can model the love of Jesus. And especially a love for those who are vulnerable and weak and dependent. And so I ask you, do the young people in our lives know that we love them and are crazy about them? That we cherish them and value them, delight in them as Jesus did? I've shared this uh, research before, but back in 2019, the Barna Group published some, some research about spiritually vibrant households. They wanted to know, again, what are some of the factors that go into a household being spiritually vibrant? And they listed some things we would expect, like, well, in the home there were, you know, conversations about faith, or reading, you know, the Bible together, or praying together, right? That was a common thread, having spiritual conversations. But they also noticed that spiritually vibrant homes were households and families that, that played together, that laughed together, shared meals and walks and played games and went to the park and modeled love and delight in each other. But it's something that kids are really good at, being playful and silly and throwing objects around the house in a joyful way, right? And so if we can kind of take the lead from our children in that way, It'll go a long way to our home being shaped by the gospel. When we think about a gospel-shaped home, I just, the point I want you to see is that we're not just talking about like intense theological dialogue, right? Like grounding in doctrine all the time, like really serious. And not to say that there aren't serious things we need to talk about and doctrine we need to talk about and spiritual important conversation we need to talk about, of course. But also our home needs to be marked by love and joy and playfulness and silliness. So your family is more important than you think because marriage is designed to display the gospel. And in our homes, we can show the love of God for children. And lastly, because Jesus wants us to honor our parents. We're not going to spend as much time here, uh, but Jesus reinforces the Old Testament command. Uh, in Matthew 19, he says, uh, to honor your father and mother. And so for Christians, there should be this, this posture of honoring our parents, caring for them, which I know many of you are doing now and doing well as parents age. Right? But often our world will invite us, again, to turn in on ourselves, and especially when we're young, kind of push against the authority of our parents or, like, appreciate our parents to the extent that they've, you know, met our expectations and aligned with our, you know, vision for our own life rather than simply honoring them for who they are and all that they've done for us. And so the scriptures teach it's good to obey our parents. It's good and right to honor them. And we should. And so in all these different directions, right, whether it's with, you know, a spouse or kids or grandkids or uh, parents, you know, whatever family relationships you have, this is a, a real up-close opportunity 
to display love in relationships, right? Philippians chapter 2, last week we talked about like honoring others above yourself, looking to the needs of others. And sometimes it's like, that's real great and cute in theory and sounds nice and we'll put it on a postcard. But in, in like real life, it's really hard to live out. But it's often in the context of family that we have uh, just a real strong opportunity to, to practice this, to practice love with those closest to us. So family is more important than you think because in all these ways we have an opportunity to display the gospel and the love of Jesus. However, like we said at the start of the morning, family in light of the gospel is more important than you think, but it's also less important than you think. Let me explain. Think back to Ephesians chapter 5. Look at, again, the commands we saw. Verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Verse 22, wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Slide, uh, excuse me, verse 25, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church. So put it all together. What do we see? We see mutual submission. We see wives submitting. We see uh, husbands loving and sacrificing for their spouse. Elsewhere, we'll see what? Children obeying and honoring their parents. Parents loving and valuing their children. So notice in all of this that if you are a Christian, your family relationships are not primarily about you. They're not primarily about you getting something from other people. You see, the posture of a Christian is to look to the needs of other people and to live for the good of other people. Themes of submission and love and sacrifice, honoring and lifting up and cherishing others. And see, today we often think, that I need certain family relationships in order to be happy or flourish. I need something specific from my spouse, or I need a spouse in general because I don't have one, or I need something from my kids, or I need some kids because I don't have any and I want some. And not that those desires are bad, but biblically speaking, what we do is we turn spouse or kids or family into an idol. We say, it's something that I need in order to be okay. Again, a few examples, we do this with our, our spouses sometimes. And we put this, this crushing burden on them uh, to do for us what they never were intended to do. For example, cultural commentators have noticed just the extreme idealism around marriage today. There's both idealism and pessimism. Idealism in the sense that you, they'll talk to people about marriage and people will say, well, uh, their spouse really needs to like fulfill all these hopes and dreams for them. There's all these desires, all these emotional, romantic desires, sexual desires that their spouse has to fulfill. And they want to find a spouse, a partner that's you know, really low maintenance, one that meets all of their needs but has very few needs of their own. Asks very little of you in return. And so you notice that the bar is just set wildly high. And anyone who's been married knows that uh, those sorts of people don't exist. You know, the ones like with no problems of their own and fix all of your problems? That's, those people don't exist. When you get married, right, you realize often um, after right, the honeymoon is over, as they say at times, and you realize your spouse is uh, just as much a piece of work as you are and has needs of their own. And, and you're called to love and care 
for them. And so often what people will do is they have this extreme idealism about all the things their spouse is going to do for them. It's, it's an idol in their hearts. And then they get in an actual marriage and they're disillusioned because they realize, well, that's not really how it works. Or they, or increasingly today, people just avoid marriage altogether because the expectations are so high. They're like, I'm never, I'll never find someone quite like that. And so they abandon it altogether. But again, in biblical terms, this is idolatry. We make a spouse, a marriage, an, an idol, something we need to be okay, something we need to have to complete us. And it puts immense pressure on our actual spouse to be something that they cannot be for us. And so the gospel challenges our assumptions about family and tells us actually a spouse is not as important as you think. You can be freed from the need to have your spouse give you your identity and fulfill all of your needs because your identity in the gospel is rooted in Christ and his love for you and what he has done for you. See, your spouse will let you down. If you're married, you know that to be true. If you're not married, eventually it'll be true. Your spouse will let you down, but Christ will not. Jesus never lets us down. And so a spouse or having a marriage is not not the end-all, be-all in order to be okay. Actually, Paul even says in 1 Corinthians 7 that it's actually maybe even better in some ways to not be married, which is a challenging thought because he basically goes on and says, you know, married people have their spouse to care for and, you know, their family to to care for and their time is kind of, you know, pulled in a lot of different directions essentially, but those who are single can have have more of an undivided devotion to the Lord. And so if you're single, remember remember you have this incredible opportunity to to serve God, to, to show up maybe when it's hard for other people to show up in certain situations or to serve and lead where it's hard for other people to serve. And remember, too, Jesus was single. You know, Jesus never got married, and he was the most truly, fully, perfectly human person that ever lived. And so the gospel frees us from turning spouse and marriage into an idol. It also frees us from turning our kids into idols. Like we talked about before, yes, we're supposed to cherish our kids and love them and, and lead them, but also realize that they're not the center of our universe. They aren't there to fulfill our dreams and our needs. And often we do the same thing as we do with a spouse. We put these crushing expectations on children, on kids to become something, to fulfill something in us. Author Paul David Tripp, longtime pastor, put it this way in his parenting book. He said, even though we don't know it, we begin to treat our kids as if they were given to us to be a living argument or case statement for the fact that we are good people and doing our job in life well. And perhaps the desire to raise children that we can be proud of is really a desire to feel good about ourselves and the way we have lived our life. As parents, this is an exhausting and discouraging way to live. Right? How many of us can, can relate to some of that where we fear that maybe our kids' failures will reflect poorly on us. Or if our children succeed, we get a nice little ego boost. Because that means we did a pretty good job. The gospel frees us from that. 
Because our identity is not rooted in the success or failure of our kids or the success or failure of our performance as parents, but it's rooted in Christ and his love for us and our identity as a child of God. And so we can be then freed to truly love our children, not for what they do for us, simply because we're called to love them freely, joyfully. And it frees them from that burden. Lastly, I'll say family is less important than we think. Again, it, it frees us from turning marriage into an idol and kids into an idol. And lastly, because it shows us the new family that we are a part of. Jesus in Mark chapter 3 says this, A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. He says, who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. Then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. So you see that Jesus really redefines family. And he points us to the people of God, followers of Jesus, as this new family we're a part of. You see that language throughout the New Testament. Actually, earlier in Ephesians, Paul writes about the household of God. You see throughout the scriptures the language of brothers and sisters in Christ, right? There's this intended to be this, this family dynamic at work in the life of the church. We're adopted into the family of God with God as our Father. And so, really, the, the nuclear family, according to Jesus, is not our primary place of identity. It's not the end-all, be-all. And for some of us, that's really comforting because maybe we don't feel quite so at home in our family anyways. And we're longing for true belonging. But for some of us, this is quite hard to hear and challenging because we've made our nuclear family the center of our lives, maybe even more so than God himself or uh, the people of God. And so, friends, we'll kind of aim to land the plane here back where we started by acknowledging that in light of the gospel, our family relationships are both more important and less important than we think. The gospel both upholds and challenges the importance of your family. And I encourage you to consider as you're processing this uh, where kind of the pressure point is in your life. You know, which part of the message kind of stood out the most to you or, or pressed you a little bit? Because for some of us, the main call from this morning left ringing in our ears should be the call to cherish and honor and uphold the family relationships that we have or will have one day as a gift from God and a powerful witness to the world. But for others, this morning should challenge us to consider how the gospel frees us from some unhealthy family dynamics, and how we might need to take steps to further prioritize Christ and his people in our lives. And let me say as well that as we talk about family, I know without a doubt there are a lot of wounds wrapped up in that. Right? And maybe as I've been talking this morning, you look back at, at your family and um, challenges there and broken relationships there or things you wished went a different way or whatever it might be. I recognize there can be a lot of pain in the room when we bring this up. And so if that's you this morning, I just want you to know there's, uh, there's grace for you. There's God's love 
for you. You're not, not defined by your successes or your, your failures as a parent or as a spouse. God loves you and sees you. And so this is not intended to be guilt and shame and burden, uh, but joy and encouragement and a reminder of, of the gospel and God's love for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we, we thank you for this morning and um, no doubt, Lord, you've, you've brought up some, some things in our hearts that we need to process. And Lord, we thank you for, first, the truth of the gospel, Jesus, that you gave yourself up for us, you died for us, that we might be washed and cleansed and healed and brought back into relationship with you. And thank you for how that gospel message frees us to be better spouses and better parents and better family members. Lord, would you forgive us for the ways we failed? And would you fill us with your spirit to move forward and with, with a, a fresh, uh, full heart of your grace, filled by your spirit, Lord, ready to love those around us in profound ways. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.